Okay. <laughs> this is a good episode. Oh my God. It was such a... Okay. Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We're switching roles from now on. Over the break, we Freaky Friday'd and we're living each other's lives. My tits are huge. <laughs> my butt can't fit through a door. Bong, 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 bong. Anyway, should we do this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we should. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're on season four, episode one, fucking chameleon. Actually, it's just chameleon. Fucking chameleon. <laughs> Opening scene. We are at a club. Yep. Just like that. There's a few different fancy looking women hard hitting on some dudes. Immediately. I'm like, these are sex workers. These are tens Mm -hmm. hitting on fours. I know what this is. Just then the police bust in. The dude leading the charge is Vice Sergeant Edward Derrico, played by James Babiri. He's been in a ton of episodes of all of the flavors of Law & Order, six Mm. of regular, four of criminal intent, and four of SVU. I will say, I went through his IMDb, he plays a cop slash detective slash agent in a ton of roles throughout his career. You know how you can just look at somebody and go, that's a cop? Yeah. Yeah. Like You you don't have to be wearing a sweatshirt inside out in a college town trying to score drugs for my roommate. Sometimes it's just your face. So these cops bust into this place, right? They do. (laughs) They're trying to get everyone to stay where they are everyone's screaming and running they go to the back of the club and there's a ton of rooms with women running out and men in various stages of undress (laughs) Mm -hmm. full-on protesting oh i didn't realize my dick was out what kind of club is this i thought i thought you liked me (laughs) one woman is telling the cops that a guy attacked her and tried to rape her this cop says sweetheart when they don't pay it it's not rape it's theft of services (laughs) and like kind of turns to walk away and she tells him she's not lying and she refuses to move until she can make a report this chick is a fucking badass by the way Mm -hmm. and they all hate her yeah benson and stabler show up at the club and they're kind of walking through everybody there's a ton of people here they ask the vice cop eddie what's going on he tells benson and stabler that the woman's name is chantilly she's claiming that she was almost raped so svu needs to be there so her real name is lisa perez Lisa Perez is being played by Sarah Ramirez, who identifies as queer and bisexual, but her pronouns are she, they. I made sure to do a decent amount of research here because some things I was reading were using they, them pronouns and some use she, her. And I don't want to misgender someone when it's not that fucking hard to get it right. So she's most recently in and just like that, the Sex and the City reboot slash update slash thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where she dates Miranda, I believe. I'm not a Sex in the City head, so I don't... Wait, what? Is Miranda not married to that Steve guy anymore? Remember the one that was like, Miranda, I love you. Miranda, I've always loved you. You're the best Miranda. Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, going to play some basketball, Miranda. Her her name is Che Diaz in the show, um, Sarah Ramirez. She plays a non-binary person who Miranda dates. Oh, wait, it's a reboot, like, but with new people? No. It's like 10 know. years later. It was like, it's called And Just Like That. I think it's on some, it's streaming. Just like that. That? Just like that? I don't know. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Sarah Ramirez has had a shit ton of roles. Grey's Anatomy, Madam Secretary, a a ton of voiceover work and long running animated shit that Darla likes. Sophia the First or the Explorer, shit like that. Also, Mm -hmm. she played Mrs. Barrera in the 2000 episode of SVU Baby Killer, the mom of the boy who shot the girl at school, but it was because (gasps) he witnessed a murder and then he is sitting in court and we're like, that's not his drawing. (laughs) Yeah. Also, this whole thing with she, they identification and everything. This reminds me to clarify something from last 
last season. Okay. It was right. on the Patreon episode of Silence, but then we released it over the break so people could check out a garbage cookie. So we got an email from Ursula and she said, Hey, Tasha and Gabe, others might have communicated the same thing I'm about to. They didn't. You were the only one. So we appreciate you. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to send something so this doesn't become a bystander effect situation. In Silence, Tasha brought up Courtney as an example of grooming and disturbing age slash experience discrepancy grossness. A couple things shared with love. One, Courtney uses they, them pronouns. Thank you. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't either. Two, they actually hadn't had surgical augmentations. They might have since becoming an adult. But at the time of the marriage, Courtney even was on the doctor's show where their breasts were examined and scanned by a screen to confirm whether they had breast augmentation or not. Excuse me while I barf everywhere because this is a child slash teen we're doing this to. Oh anyway, God. love you both on the show. Hope your break is rejuvenating. And it was. And we look forward to having you back on the mics for the next season. Love, Ursula and Odin. So... We do appreciate that kind of yes. clarification because we never want to misgender somebody or yeah. we just want to be able to at least, at least, at least do the very least to respect another human. So yeah. in now knowing that Courtney is non-binary. What's their full name? So that. Like, uh, well, I don't I don't know if if they go by a full. Well, now I have to look that up. Yeah, it looks like they kept their name. Hmm. Their full name is Courtney Stodden. Okay. Anyway, the detectives are talking to Lisa Perez. Lisa says that he tried to strangle her and shows Benson Stabler her neck. I'm going to refer to her as her because well, she she she's uses playing a character. She uses right? she they pronouns though. Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. She says that he tried to strangle her and shows Benson Stabler her neck. Staves and Benny don't see anything and they don't really believe her. Mm -hmm. They think she's making shit up to get out of these charges she's going to get for sex work. All of a sudden, Eddie's like, hey guys, come check this shit out. In the bathroom, they open a stall door and a woman is hanging by her neck on the swinging door. Mm -hmm. And then Lisa sees it and she's like, oh my God, that's Randy. I told you guys. And they just like let her come in i know i can believe <laughs> like that. why is she standing there they're like lisa everybody come here check this out gather around theme song lisa's with Craigan, munch and toots and she's pissed they're making her sit through like 10 lineups of different dudes she says that the dude was gone by the time the cops got there and then munch fucking says oh tell us again we love hearing the sound of your voice and she's mad she's like i'm a fucking victim why are you disrespecting me and then Craigan's like we're gonna go get you some coffee while you know you wait for the sketch artist and then toot says maybe if you get something in your mouth you'll shut up for five seconds and she's not having it i'm like what the fuck are they doing yeah she says you know what i want everybody's name and badge number and then toots just grabs her and takes her off somewhere i'm like Ugh. i'm not sure whose side they think we're on here <laughs> it's i know i think they're expecting middle america to be like fuck this whore you know how they ha they heavy play like they'll direct us how we're supposed to feel when watching mm -hmm. something like that's what drama is yeah but i wasn't sure i'm like i know how i feel 20 years later watching this shit but i don't know how i'm how they think i should be feeling i think they want me to be like yeah shut up shut your whore mouth like <laughs> <Yes>. what <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's the feeling and, I, and but when she's like i want everybody's badge and number i'm like get those fucking numbers yeah that's not how you treat any victim. she is in there to make a report uh, uh, of an attempted rape and murder and, and there and was her a dead friend body. murdered yeah her fr she just saw her friend post-mortem fucking murdered hanging in the bathroom after a police raid. i mean jesus christ i know you're the svu <laughs> special victims <laughs> i fucking hate the 90s Oh, yeah. It's no longer the 90s. All of this is the... Anything problematic is the fucking 90s. Okay. 
Craig and asked Benny and Stabes if they got an ID on the victim in the bathroom. Her name is Randy Colligan, a.k.a. Godiva, which I love that. She was 23. She's been working at the club for over a year, and she had two sex work priors. No DNA came from the rape kit, and the bathroom floor has as much DNA as a Super 8 hotel. <laughs> Craig is like, this guy was fucking ballsy. It's a public place, a ton of potential witnesses. Lisa walks up pissed because she can't believe her buds are getting killed and they're taking a quote break and it was funny too because they're all like oh man we got to figure this out da, da, da. meanwhile lisa was like whoop and she like slipped out of her toots headlock and she comes back and she's like what the <laughs> fuck is going on i love her and her party city wig this bitch is the best i know <laughs> she's the best i know craig and tells benson stabler to fucking find a sketch artist like yesterday and get her as far away from him as possible mm-hmm. in another room the sketch artist is working with lisa and lisa keeps getting mad at him for not getting shit right so she's knocking his arm when he makes a mistake and he's talking at her through his teeth and he's like could you stop bumping my arm while i'm trying to do this and she's like "Ugh." i was thinking of a fucking client doing that to me while i was drawing for them mm-hmm. and i would have been like get out get out yeah. i'm not tattooing you get out yeah Ugh. your situation is you know. different though if somebody's coming and being a dick being like get this tattoo right this woman's like i've been disrespected from the yeah. second these motherfuckers yeah. busted into my job yeah and you guys think you can give me a hard time at my job my friend's dead i almost got raped and you're all being fucking dicks your coffee sucks yeah so lisa snatches off her wig and she's like oh my god there's no way you're even gonna try to find this guy you don't give a shit about me my friends get raped all the time nobody investigates it and benson's like hmm having no sympathy for her she's like wow you're really playing the victim here and it's like she is the victim here yeah but she's like well your friends the victims they need to be reporting the crimes and lisa's like um okay well they could report it and then they'll be punished because they don't act like society's version of women they're just out there at risk and nobody cares and benson's like well they're at risk because they put themselves at risk and lisa's like wow so do you detective and benson's mm-hmm. like yeah to help people like you why are they even doing this right now first of know. all like benson you're getting stuck in semantics first of all and also you've set this you're on the side of the society that set this situation up for lisa to be in this position but anyway lisa's like no the only people helping us is us and fucking sister peg i should have listened to her she told us some whack job was trying to choke girls out and benson's like sister peg sister peg the nun that hands out clean needles to junkies how did sister peg know about this and lisa's like "Mm, i thought you knew everything but you don't bye and she left (laughs) and i was like i love her she's like are we done (laughs) but yay so now we get to go see sister peg because she knows shit benson Mm -hmm. and stabler show up at her little street side setup that she has handing out clean needles condoms things like that and then stabler fucking catholic drags her a tiny bit i was like "Mm, Mm -hmm. i don't think he like picks up condom he's like oh the church would hate this she's like yeah we kind of don't talk about it Anyway, Mm -hmm. what do you need? Benson asks her how she knew about the guy strangling sex workers. She says that some of her girls told her because she keeps a, quote, bad trick list so that women can avoid shitty dudes and hands Benson this piece of paper. Benson reads it and kind of scoffs at this vague list. She goes, white guy goes by Jack Psycho, black guy, scar over his eye, tried to kill me. This is your bad trick list. This is where I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? Oh my God, Benson, maybe if we didn't bastardize their profession, we could keep these women safe. At least Sister Peg is doing something. She's like, nice list, Sister Peg. Benson's like, well, why don't you call the police? You've got this information. Sister Peg's like, "Mm mm-mm, against my policy. My policy is 
No cops. Sorry. No offense. God fucking bless her. Yeah. They give her Lisa's sketch and Sister Peg's going to show it around and let them know. They want to talk to the sex workers themselves. And she's like, zip. She does that zip button Mm -hmm. thing. She's like, I believe that you are telling me the truth and that you won't arrest them. But these sex workers won't believe that. And I can't do my job for them if they don't trust me. So no, I'm not giving you their names. And Benson's like, you can't do your job. What's your job? And Sister Peg's like trying to help them be smart and safe. You know, like you, we're doing Mm -hmm. a similar job. Remember, our job is to protect them. I'm incredible. And then her fucking cape went... <laughs> and she went on about her fucking day. Yeah. So in the Emmy office, Coroner Warner tells Munch and Toots that the victim Randy was a longtime sex worker. I, I guess from like looking at her insides, I guess, right? She could tell that based on her she had like Hepsi, uh HPV. She had a list of things that were conducive with somebody her age probably wouldn't have those things unless they were in sex work, is what she her conclusion was. Yeah. She was strangled, then hung on the bathroom door post-mortem. Corner Warner thinks that the perp used his forearm to strangle her. There's no fingerprint bruising, and then there's this like indent that looks like a flat metal like cufflink or button of a jacket on her throat. The only thing Coroner Warner found was three distinct hairs that were not hers, but that only proved she had sex. Munch answers a 0.25 second phone call and they had found another body. Munch offers Corner Warner a ride by asking, how would you like to ride to the crime scene with two handsome members of the NYPD? And she's like, no, but I'll go with you guys. <laughs> no, she goes, <laughs> she says, she says, my lucky day, but I said, if I was writing with Jeremy, Corner Warner would have said, sure, let me know when they get here. <laughs> and you then so you we made both the same had joke. To, <laughs> we both had. <laughs> but yeah, let me in your car, you ugly motherfuckers. <laughs> By the way, I hate you. Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Shotgun, you bitch. And she pie faces fucking yeah, munched to the ground. <laughs> Shotgun, you made of rats, motherfucker. <laughs> She pie faces him and he just like falls apart into like 150 rats and they scurry away. <laughs> Munch and Toots pie faces him into 150 rats. Oh, I, I, like the thing is, is like I see it so well. Me too. In my head, you know. <laughs> the gang's on 11th Street. Through a fence, you can see the legs of a woman hanging. Apparently this area is known as like a drug hangout area. Drug, mm-hmm. sex work. Corner Warner gets on a milk crate, which was adorable. Yeah. And she notices that on the victim's forehead is a nicely preserved thumbprint. In lipstick. In the squad room, Daddy Craig is telling the gang that the print belongs to a Mr. Sean Becker. He's been convicted of assault and attempted rape in the late 1900s. <laughs> or 1994. Twas a year for the ages. Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction were crushing the box office. Gabe was crushing in a different way on Matthew Broderick's voice in an adolescent cartoon lion's body. Korn released their self-titled album teeing up Tasha's terrible choices and evergreen jokes at the expense of her by her friends. What a time to be alive! I wrote that for you. I know. I love it that you did that. I'm I'm like... In Gabe's notes, she wrote the late 1900s, 1994, and I'm like, (laughs) I am going to do some research. (laughs) So dumb. All right, yeah, 94. So he was... uh, 
in trouble then. Sean was released from Attica three weeks ago. His PO hasn't talked to him in four days. They have a squad car hanging around dude's apartment. His ex-girlfriend was the complaining witness for the 94 shit and has since moved out of state, but she's blonde. Dude has an MO, maybe? It's too early in the episode, unless this is one of those episodes where they chase the guy around the entire time and they can't yeah. find him till the end. Craig tells them to hand flyers off to all the sex workers they can, and you know Benson and Stabler are heading to Sister Peg's. Stabler thinks that maybe Sister Peg will be willing to break the sex workers' confidence to save their lives. Trying to paint her into a corner. I know. At Sister Peg's van, she takes the flyers and she's like, yeah, this is helpful, and like tucks them away. But she still refuses to give the names of the women who have been with the perp. Stabler's giving her shit about not really caring about women, which fucking fuck off. It's just a manipulation tactic. It's just a tactic to try to get her to give them information. But she isn't like a dumb perp. Stabes. Yeah. She's like, um, I've been mugged four times in the last year. So fuck you. Yeah. I'm risking my life to help these women. So yeah. she has to keep her word with the sex workers so that she can keep helping them. She won't give a name, but she tells them that some of the gals used to work out of this hotel, but they don't anymore because a dude had been hanging around and he was getting rough with them. At the Palm Hotel, the front desk guy's freaking out. He just called the police. He was like, oh my God, you guys got here quick. And they were like, what? It's totally two different things that happened. Yeah. yeah. But it was just one of those fun little like, oh my God, I was expecting you. And they're like, who's on first? Yeah. But someone had heard two gunshots in room 502 and he had called the police. So Stabler shows this dude a pic of the perp and the front desk guy says that, yep, that's him. And he had a lady with him. Benson calls for backup and the music's like, because we're about to come in on some shit. Benson mm-hmm. and Stabler are banging on the door and we hear a woman on the other side of the door say, I shot him. They bust in and see a woman backed up against a window pointing a gun to the other side of the room. Benson and Stabler have their guns drawn and are telling her to drop the weapon. She puts it down and slides against the drapes to the floor crying and she looks pretty roughed up. Mm-hmm. The camera pans over to the bed where we see the perp, Sean Becker, dead on the floor. Mm-hmm. So the woman who had shot him is played by Sharon Lawrence. I recognize her as the hard-ass gentrifying developer slash landlord in the American version of Shameless. She's got awesome credits. And in this, she just shot a dude. Yeah. In the hospital, Benson and Stabler find out that her name is Deborah. So she's in a hospital gown and is telling Benson and Stabler she didn't want to kill Becker. She just wanted him to stop. And she's really worked up. Benson asks her what happened and like assures her that they're not there to get her in trouble for sex work. Mm-hmm. Deborah says she was working at the bar next door to the hotel and he came in and sat down. She was working the bar. Like she wasn't an employee at the bar. Yeah. Deborah says she had red flags popping up, but she really needed the money. She says, oh, I must have been asking for it. And then Stabler tells her no one is asking for it, mm-hmm. which is like funny because like you were just giving Lisa fucking Perez some shit. Oh, fucking whatever. She tells them not to patronize her. In the hotel room, she asked him to pay her before they got started and he just started hitting her. He raped her, then pulled out a gun and she just kept fighting him. He dropped the gun and then she grabbed it and shot him three times. She says she knows how lucky she is. Yeah, she's like telling the story and she goes, and then the cavalry arrived. And she looked up at Stabes and he gives an aw shucks kind of response to her. Remember that for later. Right. Stabler says she might not be so lucky next time. And she's like, oh, is this the part where you try to convince the seasoned hooker to mend her ways and become a contributing member of society? Stabler hands her his card and points out that on the back there's a number for victim services. In Cragen's office, Stabler is telling Cragen and Cabot that all the evidence looks good for self-defense. Deborah had a concussion. 
concussion, and her rape kit was also consistent with sexual assault. Cabot agrees, and so Cragen's like, well, we just gotta finish up these loose ends. Munch and Toots are running ballistics on the gun, and nothing came up when we ran Deborah's name, so easy peasy, lemon squeezy, we're just about done here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> we know this because we're very shortly into it. They don't know this yet because this is their reality. Cabot's like, I'm going to make uh, recommendations to not press charges. And Craigan's like, for sure. Sounds good. And they were all just a little too much of this going on. Uh-huh too much i like that cabot was like hey guys nice work and i thought that was like really sweet i wish that they would tell her that sometimes (laughs) maybe they do maybe they do they don't they don't they don't appreciate her and they don't deserve her in the ballistics lab so they're just gonna like do a quick going through the motions overview of the gun the ballistics lab guy is played by keith tisdale not only was this dude in oz mm -hmm, jesus he was accepted on a full basketball scholarship to Northwestern State in Louisiana and was going to be a child psychologist. But then he went to some open house and was scouted to be a model and moved to New York to be professionally good looking. OK, oh he God. did end up getting his psychology degree, but he's mainly been acting since then. Can you tell that I've missed doing deep dives? I saw this guy and I'm like, I know that you have a life behind this. Is there life out there? This guy, he's um, he was cute. They put glasses on him to like make him seem less hot. And it's like, mm-mm, it's not working. <laughs> he tells Munch and Toots that the gun is tied to an unsolved homicide from six months prior. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is a problem. Yeah. And the lab dude's confused. He's like, this is a good thing. This dude who's dead killed somebody six months ago. And now we can figure that out. And they were like, mm-mm. Becker was in Attica six months ago. <gasps> what is happening? So now they're going to figure out this other murder. Yeah. They were like, Jesus Christ. Like, we were just about to go to Mulligan's for half beers or wherever they go. (laughs) He's like, Doc McStuffins. (laughs) Mulligan's for half beer. Okay, so in the squad room, Benson is telling everyone that the victim from six months ago was Leonard Graves. He had a long rap sheet possession with intent to sell, carrying a concealed weapon. So he had three shots to the head and was robbed. And it was considered a drug-related homicide. There is no immediate connection between Becker and Leonard Graves. The gun could have been circulating for years, and Cragen really doesn't want to follow that. He wants immediate ideas. Yeah, he was like, he's like, what's the, what did he say? Usually he's like, follow the money, follow the gun, follow the... Well, he's like, what's what's the short answer here? Like, what's the what's the most direct line? You know, because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it could be that this guy met this guy in a bar and they got in a fight and then he stole his gun in the bathroom, you know, and like make up this entire thing. He goes, what's the most direct possible line, though? Let's yeah. let's go to that first, which is the most logical thing to do. And so Stabler's like, I don't know, just spitball in here. Maybe Deborah <laughs> owned the gun the whole time and killed both dudes. Yeah, but she was raped by Becker. Yeah, that makes them go. Yeah. Stabler, I don't know about that. She's truly a victim here. Yeah. Craigan wants to focus on who killed Leonard Graves. Munch says that they can't talk to Deborah about this because she took off after talking to Benson Stabler. She gave them a fake name, so her name isn't Deborah. She gave him a fake name, address, and social security number. Craigan sends Stabler and Benson to go to homicide and look into who looked good for Graves' murder. And then he sends Munch and Toots to check with cab companies, dump the ER phones, and find Deborah or whoever she is. So it's funny to me that they're going after this so hard just because there's logical explanations for all of it. They're like, well, she gave a fake name. And Benson's like, yeah, dude, she's a sex worker. Like, 
that's right. par for the course. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just interesting how they had comebacks and Craig and's like, I don't know, this one really sticking in my craw. Who the hell? I mean, come on. Deborah's obviously a fake name. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is named Deborah anymore? Who's I'm named trying Deborah to th- Yeah, I don't know. Who? First of all, who has a bright, shining, slick from uteri baby in their hands and says... <laughs> Slip from uterine. I don't know. (laughs) Looking into their freshly opened eyes and says, Just came down the flume of Magic Mountain. (laughs) Looks at this child and says, Deborah. You look like you're going to be filing paperwork. (laughs) Deborah. It's like like naming somebody Diane. It's like... (laughs) Yeah. Did the child come out with graying hair and like glasses beads? Right. You're a Diane. (laughs) Come on, Deborah. We're going to head home. You'll get to meet your fucking toddler brother, Gary. (laughs) Or Guy. Who are these people? Kevin. Kevin. Kevin's a young people name. Kevin's a, that's, I hate, I fucking hate that name and I don't understand. It's an interesting name to like, you know why I think it's, you know why I think it's a childhood name because of Home Alone. Yeah. In my mind, if an adult is named Kevin, which I know adults named Kevin, I'm like, where are your parents? Yeah. Do you have a work permit? Just think of all these kids with the names like Skylar and all those names are like kid names. And I can't imagine a grown person being like, my name is Bailey. <laughs> you know, like a grown man that I'm about to blow. <laughs> like, say my name. And I'm like, Bailey. I can't. <laughs> I'd be like, I gotta get out of here. Glug, 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 Bailey. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, Bailey's Irish cream. (laughs) Bailey, give me some Irish cream. (laughs) Gross. Gross. Okay, fuck. Okay, in. All right, now to. In homicide. (laughs) We're taking this too far. In Homicide, Benson and Stabler are talking to a dude outside. He grew his little cookie duster out just in time for this role. Actually, we've met him before. This is Detective Palmieri, and we met him in a couple roles, actually, last season. So I was like, I know this guy, and I want to read about his little Ned Flanders mustache. This dude, dive in. This is actor Kent Casella. Not only has this dude acted in 16 episodes of SVU as a range of characters, but he was Dan Florek's uncredited stand-in in 182 episodes of the show. So his main job as a crew member on SVU is to take Florek's spot in rehearsals or in like a camera blocking marked scene where it's like just the back of his head or whatever, um, Mm -hmm. or when they're setting lighting for actual scenes. This guy was on set all the time. Hmm. And they're just like, here, throw this trench coat on, say these lines. And he's like, got it. (laughs) He tells Benson and Staves that there are a ton of reasons why anyone would want to kill Graves. All the credit card receipts from after his murder were were signed Mrs. Graves, though, and he's not married. Mm-hmm. So the only description given to police about, quote unquote, Mrs. Graves is that she was blonde. She was spending mm-hmm. just enough to not alert the credit card companies and didn't use the card for long. Little things like trips to get her nails done, grocery store, makeup counter, a nice hotel room, and one large amount at FAO Schwartz. And they were like, huh, huh. follow the money. Yeah, I've got a new idea. Why don't we follow the money? <laughs> Luckily, FAO Schwartz is like two blocks away, so it's fine. <laughs> Munch and Toots go to Bluebird Daycare Center. They're talking to Mrs. Kerber. It's her daycare. I love her, by the way. Yeah, she's sweet. She's so sweet. There's like all these little pictures that the kids drew everywhere. They tell her that from the hospital, they traced a call to this daycare. She says she took a call from Maggie, who was mugged. So Maggie's actually Deborah. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Kerber says that she babysits Maggie's son nights. Maggie, Deborah, Maggie, Maggie, we're going with Maggie now. Mm-hmm. Maggie wanted to pick her kid up early and came by around five in the morning. Ma- Maggie told Mrs. Kerber that her and her son were going to leave town on, on a little vacation. And she's like, oh, they're always doing things like that. She's such a good mom. Right. And as far as Mrs. Kerber knows, Maggie drops her son off at night because she works third shift at a diner. Mm-hmm. So she just thought that she was attacked by a random dude. She doesn't know her occupation. Not that that matters. But not, no, she, but like she doesn't know what, what yeah, Maggie's Benson, real job is. Yeah, Benson pointed out like, oh, you know, a hundred dollars a night to watch your kid like that couldn't be supported by waitressing at a diner third shift. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Which I don't know. Whatever. Okay. In Craigan's office, Toots tells him her full name is Margaret Peterson. Benson looked into Vicap for murders in known sex work areas where credit cards were stolen and where children's items were bought. There's a bunch and they're all unsolved. We got a serial killer on our hands, Tasha. Woo! In the squad room, Daddy Craigan commands the room, of course. So three of the dudes murdered are in their jurisdiction, Becker, Graves, and Malakowski. But for all the men, besides the credit cards, there's not much of a pattern between the dudes. Some did time. Some had soliciting charges and some are just completely clean. There's not an MO in how they were murdered either. Huang doesn't feel 100% about labeling the suspect a serial killer. He says that she doesn't fit the typical profile. Munch points out that there really isn't a typical profile for female serial killers. And he says, quote, the FBI studied 36 guys like 20 years ago. Historians are thinking a lot of unsolved murders were committed by women who got away with it simply because no one thought a girl could kill. So Huang understands what Munch is saying. But Maggie was raped and her actions could be pronounced rape trauma syndrome, which means that anything could trigger past trauma and whether or not the guy is going to attack her, she feels threatened. Right. Stabler ain't buying it. He's like, oh yeah? Then she goes on a shopping spree after the murders? Stabler thinks that she's celebrating her kills. Yeah. Which is also actually pretty valid. (laughs) Daddy Cragen says that they really have nothing until they find her. Follow the money! And it's the first time they say that in this season, which is... Definitely not the last. Yeah. Becker was her last murder. No credit card shit has come through in his name yet. She's going to have to find another source of income soon. Whoop. Whoop. Crime scene. So Benson and Stabler roll up to this murder scene. A dude named Vincent Bertram is in a suit with his pants undone, and he is dead, sitting in the driver's seat of a car. What? I thought he, I thought this was going to be the first missing dick of the... Oh. You they're know. like, oh, his fly is down. His dick's still there. And then you see Benson slide a fiver over to... Staves. <laughs> but this guy's dead. He's got like six stab wounds. Um, Benson can tell that just by opening the car door because she's a professional. Like if somebody mm-hmm. stabs six times, I, don't know, I just thought that was kind of like, okay, I get it. We can't sit and like analyze shit. Corner right. Warner's like, could you wait a minute for me to? Yeah, there's blood everywhere. How do you know? No cash in his wallet. Lots of credit cards on him still. But Stabler's like, we got to remember that Maggie usually only takes one. Okay. So mm-hmm. we got to get that credit report and find out which one is missing. Because that's what they're mm-hmm. expecting at this point. Yeah. In the squad room, Bertram's credit report came back with a butt ton of debt, and they find out he is missing a credit card. Toots tells him that the cause of death was between two and four hours ago, quote, pre-release. Yuck. Staves is like, is that significant? And Toots is like, no, that's just cold. And I hated that. I hated it. It was unnecessary. And I like that Stabler was like, why are you even bringing that up? That's weird. It's weird of you. Benson gets off the phone. 30 minis ago, the card has a $400 charge to the Lancaster Hotel. Go on now, get! (laughs) 
Benson and Stabler go to the Lancaster Hotel. They fucking have their guns out. They call Margaret's name. There's a bunch of helmet cops. They fucking kick open the door. And even that little like cutie pie helmet cop that we love that's always in stuff. He's there with a little mustache. The guy who quantum leapt from World War II. (laughs) Yes, he's so cute. You know, they bust in the door. Margaret's there. She's panicking and picks up her kid. Her son is crying and she's begging them to put down their guns. Uh She's like, no guns, no guns. Benson grabs her son from her and they handcuff her. She's yelling for her son. Her son's name is Joey, by the way. She's like, Joey! Yeah, he's like a toddler. So she's... Yeah. So in the squad room, Bunch has little Joey in his lap playing with toy cars. Cragen tells Benson ACS can't pick up the kid for a few hours. And Margaret keeps asking for him. So they are going to use her kid to try and get her to confess. Wong was like, hey, can I talk to her first? I want to do like a little mental exam. Stabler says to do it after because if she thinks they are concerned about her mental shit, they'll lose the advantage. They want to keep her scared. Wong totally disagrees. If she's very traumatized, she could totally shut down. He's like, I'll keep it very brief. Stabler isn't too keen on him, but Cragen agrees with Wong and tells him to go ahead. Good. Yeah. In the interrogation room, Wong wants to talk about Maggie's relationships. Side note, she is absolutely stunning in this lighting. She looks like a Disney princess. Yeah, she does. Yeah. She tells him that she didn't get along with her parents. Her mom died when she was six and her dad was a violent drunk prick. Huang asks if she's ever had hallucinations and she's like, no. And then he asks if she has ever felt like someone was out to get her. She says no initially, but then changes her answer to yes. To be like, <laughs> the cops. <laughs> yeah. He's doing this line of questioning to try to just do a quick little evaluation here. He asks her if she's ever found herself in a situation where she ended up someplace and couldn't remember how she got there. And to that, she said, often, how do you know that? Yeah, she's like, how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. She goes on to tell him that when she goes with these men, she'll be in a hotel room or something and just black out. And then she comes to and she's walking home with zero Mm -hmm. information of the in-between. Yeah. She claims that the first time that she had something like this happen was when she was young and her dad would start hitting her. Mm -hmm. Wong leaves the room and goes into the squad room, tells the whole gang that she's not psychotic, but seems to suffer from PTSD and dissociative episodes. But he says she's lying. She's saying what she thinks Wong wants to here i love how he came out and started presenting this too i know he like he's like she appears to be suffering from ptsd and dissociative episodes but she she's lying but she's so. full of shit yeah huang yeah. <laughs> wants stabler to go in alone he wants to see how she interacts with stabler stabler goes in her attitude changes and she leans back in the chair at first she's initially mirroring stabe's tough guy thing yeah she says she doesn't think that huang is right about her being traumatized she was kind of like <laughs> i've been through a lot but you know like tough guying it stabler tells mm-hmm. her that there's a lot of bodies connected to her and she ran out of the hospital and gave a fake name so let's figure this out right and she was like, dude, I thought they were right. going to arrest me for sex work. Stabler wants to talk about the victim, Bertram. She asks him if he really wants to talk about that and then leans in and says that he's probably more interested in the moments leading up to it. Bloop, bloop, bloop. And she starts unbuttoning this little cardigan like sweater thing. set cardigan thing that she's wearing. <laughs> yeah. She goes from being like... <laughs> 
cool, sassy to very overtly sexual mm-hmm. on a dime. Yeah. And it's like, do you not see the big pain of two-way glass? Like, <laughs> yeah. She like pops a titty out. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're not, you're not like alone alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, do you realize that everybody is watching you and analyzing your fucking... Like he's going to cartoon wolf Ooga, and forget that he's being completely fucking observed. So she's like, bloop, bloop, unbuttoning this Cardi and mm-hmm. says, oh, it's getting hot in here. Huh. The music's getting all swelly and she stands up and she's like, guys like you don't really like to talk. She's moving closer and closer to him. She sits down on the table in front of him and is like sexy baby talking, which I find very not sexy. And Stabler's like, why don't you uh, sit back down in your chair? She's like, you're different than other dudes. <laughs> which is the the thing that we all know to say to a guy to get him instantly hard. <laughs> it's like, you're different than all, you're different than other guys I've bound. You seem nice and normal, but there's a part of you that will never be that guy. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm strong. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, and so then my head goes back to when she was like, oh, the cavalry arrived. And he was like, oh, geez. Oh, shucks. She appreciates me. She retained that. And she's trying to like feed back into this little dent in his armor that she thought she saw. That's what that's what I'm reading right now anyway. And she goes, I mean, look at that body. Who are you trying to impress? Yeah. We're all like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's like, maybe my wife. She goes, mm-mm. That entire package <laughs> is for everyone else. And she fucking slithers out of her cardigan and calls him a tease. Stupid-ass cardigan. She is pressing her nose against his nose pretty much, like hot breathing inside of his mouth. Yeah. She goes, everything about you is, look at me. Look at everything you can't have. I like that. I aspire to that. And Stabler's like, you sound like a shrink. He is pretending that she's not fucking snail trailing all over his slacks. <laughs> It's weird. Right. Stabler goes, you sound like a shrink. And she's like, um, I know men and I'm not afraid. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. So she is straddling Stabler like she's climbing on a horse. They're on a swing and they're about to spider. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, are you afraid? And then all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and he's like, well, gotta go. And walks back to the other side of the glass in Craigan's Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> And says, wow. Which is a funny name that you gave it because everybody's there. Everybody's there. The Fortress Fortress of Solitude, isn't that from Superman? Yeah, it is. But nobody knows about it. Oh, well, they all Nobody knows about (laughs) Superman's Fortress of Solitude. They got an invite. Okay. (laughs) Let it go. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Let it go. God, Tasha. We've been going on about this for hours. Stabler comes in kind of trying to shake off his half boner and he's like, wow, like what is yeah. the fuck is up with her? What is she trying to pull right now? Like she's a completely different person. Is she trying to do like a like a multiple personality defense? Huang has the biggest smile on his face because he's so excited to share this knowledge with his friends. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, dude, she's got what is called a cocktail personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they're like, tell us more. And he's like, yeah. (laughs) So she reads other people's vulnerabilities and performs accordingly. Wong says it's a classic sign of a sociopath. She was raped, but may have manipulated the situation, choosing violent men in order to make her the sympathetic victim. Mm -hmm. But she never feels like the victim because she always feels like she can control every man. Right. Benson wants in because she thinks it takes away Maggie's control. Yeah. 
you know, like two chicks, you know? Yeah. She's like, how is she going to fucking try yeah. to manipulate me right now? And at this point, Maggie doesn't even know they're on to them, which is weird because she's being very overt. Yeah. I thought maybe Maggie was going to try to pull like a lesbian thing. Like, oh, I'm totally into chicks, detective or I don't know, something, <laughs> you know, I guess. I don't or know she would try to pull the um, because she's just like reading what she thinks that person's vulnerabilities are, mm-hmm. which kind of calls out Staves because it's like, why does she think that she could blow him in front of everybody? What's that say about him? Mm? When Benson was like, I'm going to go in there. I'm like, ooh, she's going to be like, I wish I had a better dad or something, you know? Yeah. If only I had a best friend. <laughs> You know, Stabler fucking dives into the room and he's like, she has a best friend. And he's handing her one of those fucking to go cups of coffee. (laughs) Huang wants Benson to tell Maggie what they know and expose her lies to her. Mm. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be fucking good. (laughs) Benson goes in and tells her to sit down in the chair. Maggie's like, but where's Stabler? And she's like, just us girls now. Sit. Mm -hmm. And Maggie kind of sassily goes back to her chair. Benson tells Maggie that her bullshit isn't going to work with her. She can pretend to be whoever she wants, but it's a fucking joke. She's a joke. Maggie asks for her son. Benson's like, you're never going to see that kid ever again. And you know what? We know you lied about your mom being dead. And there's no dad on the birth certificate. You don't even know him. You murdered seven dudes. The state's going to fucking kill you. You murdered seven dudes for a hotel room and a manicure. You're a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Maggie goes, "Ah!" (laughs) like jumps at Benson, but obviously benson just rolls her over over on her stomach and benson's like i am highly trained in cop karate and so she immediately fucking has her on her belly and then craig and staves jump in to help even though they didn't need to she had it she had it taken care of now we're at the courthouse we're doing a walk and talk cabot is telling wong that maggie's dna was found in trace evidence in both malakowski and bertram murders and after exhuming leonard graves they found a match with some hairs and Wong's like, cool, why are you telling me that? <laughs> that was funny. He's like, great, what? Are we getting lunch or not? <laughs> Cabot wants to recommend the death penalty, and it's the first time against a woman in New York State. Cabot wants his blessing, but his position on the death penalty is he's against it. Huang does believe that she is a calculated predator, though, and that she will kill again. In the office of Liz Donnelly. Ooh, ooh. Liz motherfucking Donnelly. In the office of Liz Donnelly. Fucking Cabot and Liz are storming in. They're coming back from the Capitol Committee where they just had to argue about women's rights and the right to execute a woman, which seemed weird for them. The majority agreed with Cabot's recommendation, though. Liz Donnelly just needs the DA to sign it, but then Cabot will be considered an enemy of feminism, in her words, Mm -hmm. if they go ahead with this, which I disagree with, but okay. Uh, Cabot thinks that Maggie deserves the death penalty just like any other killer. Then all of a sudden, bloop, they're interrupted by reoccurring character da nora lewin aka adorable little cherub yes. diane weist she goes so she should just take it like a man cabot goes what da lewin gender's got nothing to do with it she murdered four dudes in this jurisdiction alone and da lewin says that she was only charged with three and the fourth was self-defense cabot says it doesn't change the circumstances of the other murders da lewin is kind of digging in here and says she doesn't believe that the first woman new york executes should be a single mother sex worker rape victim liz donnelly jumps in and goes yeah and fucking serial killer bitch She knew those men were violent and she chose them to feel morally justified in killing them. D.A. Lewin goes, so you're saying she asked for it? Ooh, Ooh. damn. Which everyone has valid points here. 
Right. So they all start arguing back and forth. If she were a man killing women, would they even be having this discussion? But D.A. Lewin is able to screech it to a halt because she's like, yeah, we would be if capital punishment was on the table. We're going to have this conversation regardless because we're talking about somebody's life. Yeah. Liz Donnelly's like, no, because if Maggie were a man, it wouldn't offend the female constituents who put you, D.A. Lewin, in office. Damn. Ooh. And the bad bitches. D.A. Lewin steps up because she ain't no bitch and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and says, capital punishment is always political, but I'm not killing anyone, male or female, if there's a chance it was self-defense. You don't like it? You can always run against me next term. <laughs> this fucking lady. I love her. She just fucking slunks out of the room. <laughs> Yeah. She has the sweetest voice and demeanor, which makes it even more awesome when she's like a badass in her roles. Yeah. She's like, I know that you're known for like spanking everybody, but bend the fuck over. Yeah. Grab your ankles, you dumb bitch. (laughs) Mama's in town. Gross. On the stand at the trial is the chief of medical services at the hospital Maggie was at. Lawyer Greer the defense attorney, has her read off the list of injuries Maggie had received. Cabot wants to know why they're reading this shit off, and the judge pops his head out from a hole he's digging because he wants to know too. <laughs> this was the moliest of mole judges. He goes like this on his whiskers. <laughs> Dirt comes off, he's like... Pfft. Yeah, what's going on? But this list of injuries was from 2000. This was what Malakowski did to Maggie before she killed him. Yeah, this wasn't from like the most recent case. Mm-hmm. And Cabot's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. On the stand now is the wife of Bertram. She said she wasn't surprised when she heard that he may have been killed by a sex worker. She knew that that was one of his hobbies. Yeah. On the stand, she claimed that it didn't really bother her that he was out with sex workers because it meant that he would stay away from her. She said that she got tired of explaining the black eyes to her friends. And Cabot's like, Ugh. no! objection Cabot goes Bertram's not on trial here Maggie is the one who fucking murdered him okay Mm -hmm. but lawyer Greer tells the judge that if Maggie is saying she killed these men to keep them from raping and killing her then the jury should hear about the men's past violent behaviors and the judge Mm. agrees yeah Cabot's not doing too well in this case so far Mm-mm. Greer continues and asks why the wife had called the police on Bertram last year. The wife said that night was unusually bad. He came home drunk and pulled her out of bed. He started hitting her and ripped off her pajamas. She got on the phone and called the cops and they got there just in time because she was certain that he would have raped her or killed her. Yeah. And somehow she gets to say that I'm sure he would have raped or killed me. She gets to say that and Cabot doesn't object. I know because she was just straight speculating. Yeah. I mean, fuck that guy for sure. But I'm just yeah, saying like... But- as far as like what we're used to hearing in the courtroom yeah now maggie's on the stand she's saying that she's not proud of being a sex worker but does what she has to do to make a life for her and her son she does admit to killing men and she's sorry that they died but needed to protect herself she is working the shit out of that judge and jury yeah she's really Mm -hmm. yeah she's like my son my world my child my prince Then it's Cabot's turn to cross-examine her. Maggie tells Cabot she doesn't have a choice in being a sex worker. She, quote, didn't grow up privileged with parents who'd send me to law school. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, just to burn Cabot a little bit. Cabot goes, oh, you were so threatened by these men that you found time to steal their credit cards. Which, okay, I don't love that. Yeah. Maggie goes on and says everything she's ever done is for her son and to make a life for him. She looks at the jury all teary-eyed and says, he's my little prince. Okay, so you wake up, take your kid to babysitters, go to work, knowingly put yourself in danger. You knowingly can be killed. Is that how you love your son? And I don't like that 
line of questioning either. Um, I hate it because you could do the same line of questioning with cops or firefighters, journalists in war-torn mm-hmm. countries. Like there are people of yeah. all walks of life that are doing a job that puts them in harm's way to make a life for themselves in one way or another. So yeah, I don't know what the point there it's was. Not, you know, sex work isn't socially acceptable, right? So yeah, you're grasping at straws. You're grasping right. really hard at straws here. And Cabot, I'm on your side, but I don't like that. So. Yeah. God damn it. Those guys that those people that climb those fucking huge fans, wind fans. You know what I mean? <laughs> Crab fishing? I Holy shit. Say, like uh like people that climb Mount Everest. People do that as like a not for fun, but for like a like a like I need this in my life and people with kids do that and people die doing that. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Whatever. It's we all know what we're saying here. Yeah. But yeah, putting yourself in danger in the name of your job does not determine the level that you love your kids. So, yeah. And Maggie knows that. And she's like, I accept the risks and I would die for my son. You can question me about my life and my past and my profession and everything, but do not question how I love my son. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I love him. (laughs) This lady's from like Connecticut. He is my little prince. (laughs) My sweet, precious angel prince. Without him, I am nothing. You hear that, Ma? You hear that, Jesus? <laughs> I love him. Okay, what the fuck was that? You light up my life. <laughs> she takes the mic off the stand. Okay. A fan starts I, blowing. I wish that would happen at a courtroom. <laughs> oh. This goes out to my son, Joey. You. <laughs> Where would the fan come from? The double doors at the back of the room would fly oh, open the, and there would be one of those the big just industrial like fans. Slowly, <laughs> the judge slowly lifts up a fan. The judge lifts up Gabe's fucking nighttime box fan. <laughs> I can't believe that hotel brought two. That's never happened in my life. Gabe goes into her bedroom and she's like, what's this hole dug in the floor in my room? Where's my fan? <laughs> oh my God. I am so, I'm in a weird mood today. Me too. Oh, okay. Okay, now we're in the squad room. Motherfucking Liz Donnelly is pissed at the gang for missing the domestic incident report from Bertram's wife. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it wasn't on his rap sheet, so they wouldn't... I was waiting for you, big. Apparently- I know, I was holding my breath, <laughs> so I didn't do it. <laughs> okay. Apparently, it wasn't on his rap sheet, so they wouldn't have seen it. Because Be- Benson is like, fucking A, lady. Mm-hmm. Liz is begging them to find some shit to poke holes in Maggie's case, or they're fucked. Yeah. Liz wants to offer man to 810, and Cabot says, no way. <laughs> it's like the most like teenager mom yes. mold ever. No way. Stabler, Liz, and Cabot are all talking about how they are fucked, and she's going to walk away, and how Maggie looks like the victim to everyone. Benson stops them and asks how old Maggie's son is. He's two and a half or 30 months or some fucking bullshit or whatever Shut you up. guys like. You guys. <laughs> I fucking told you I don't do that. So while they're having this entire conversation, Benny's like rifling through files and Mm -hmm. she goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Shut up. How old is Maggie's son? And they're like two and a half. And she goes, shit, man. End quote. (laughs) Based based on his age and this fucking paperwork. So this paperwork turns out to be Maggie's medical reports. Uh There is nothing in there that says she was even fucking pregnant so they're like holy shit this might not even be her kid right what they have her dna from the rape kit and acs will give them permission for the boy's dna 
Benson thinks since Maggie kills to get what she wants, that's how she got a kid. She was like, I want to be a mom now and murdered somebody. Holy shit. Rikers Island. Cabot pops into a cell with Maggie and her lawyer, Greer. It's Sunday and Cabot is in jeans and like this little shirt and looks adorable. Greer looks over the papers and says, so the kid's not hers. Why does this matter? Which like, that's a really laissez-faire response from (laughs) a defense attorney with a woman that has a possibility of being on death row. Yeah. And Maggie doesn't even flinch when she says that. It's fucking weird. Yeah. Cabot says to Maggie, do you want to tell your lawyer how you got the kid or should I? Mm -hmm. And Maggie's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. care about any of this. You're stupid. I'm a dumb bitch. Blah, blah, blah. So Cabot's like, okay, I'll do it. Whatever. So about 18 months ago, a chick named Erin Byers was grocery shopping. Her body was found in the store parking lot strangled. Her stolen car turned up a week later. Her six-month-old son was never found. And the music gets all like, wee. And Greer says, you'll never be able to introduce this. Cabot goes, hmm, actually, it was Maggie who opened the door by going on about everything she does for her child, you know? She's saying that it was Maggie who tripped up by parading a mother's love in front of the jury. So she is going to be able to introduce it because it's not new information. It's just in response. And if the judge calls a mistrial, Cabot will just refile and tack on the kidnapping and murder charges. Cabot tells Maggie that no one's going to believe her bullshit now. She goes... You think the jury's going to believe your I kill men because they beat me story now? Do you think the DA is going to give you another pass on the death penalty? Try it. Yeah. <laughs> so Maggie asks for Joey. Cabot's like, um, he's with his dad. You know, the one who thought he was dead this whole time. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Like, uh. No, I can't. So, yeah. So now Joey's with his fucking real dad. dad. Yeah. So Greer asks if there's an offer on the table. Cabot says murder two on all counts, 15 to 20, concurrent. And the new charges they'll talk about after the trial. Maggie won't do it. She won't plead guilty. She says she did not kill that woman. She's like, I found Joey because she threw him away. And Cabot's like, it is over. Yeah. You're done. All her like bullshit motherhood lies and it's going to be exposed. Maggie says she has to think about it. Yeah. Cabot tells her if she doesn't make her mind by 9 a.m. tomorrow, she's going to make up her mind for her. And then I was like, oh, my God, this chick's going to fucking kill herself, isn't she? Well, I mean, it's kind of pointing in that direction because, like, what else? What's she going to do? She's being painted into a corner. And nobody puts Maggie in a a corner. Uh. (laughs) I hate myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to use a CPAP anymore. I want to be done with this fucking. (laughs) Done with this world. I want to shuffle this mortal coil. Okay. All right, in the court, they're waiting on the defendants. They're waiting on Maggie. Cabot says they may have a plea. The judge wants them to call down to the jails to see what's taken so dang long. So ding dang long. There's, <laughs> so there's a problem. Benson and Stabler pop up and go down to check it out. Yep, she hung herself with her stockings and left a note. And it says, last will and testament. I leave all my worldly belongings to my beloved son. Without him, I am nothing. There's a number for a safety deposit box with 10K. Even in her death, she's putting on a performance. Her fucking hair is perfect. Mm -hmm. Her note is like, my son. Her makeup looks great. Flawless. In a jail cell. Yeah. And then Sailor says, a performance of her life. (laughs) And that's it. So I googed, because I've always Uh called her Aileen, and I googed it, and it is generally pronounced Eileen, and the A is silent, but it is acceptable to say Aileen, but then I was like, well, if if it's technically supposed to be this, then I'm going to pronounce it that way. Okay. This chaser, this episode is based, what we think, on 
Eileen Warnos. Charlize Theron played Eileen Warnos in the movie Monster and won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 2004. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? You've seen that movie. Yeah, a couple times, yeah. Okay. Christina Ricci's in it. Yes. And I only watched it one time. I set myself up for it, too, because I watched it by myself, and it made me feel like I got, like, a really gross feeling when I watched it. Yeah. I don't know why, for some reason. I just remember going to Target after and feeling super gross, like, walking past people and be like, they see me as, like, a swamp monster. I don't know. <laughs> it was a weird it was a weird feeling. Anyways, this story is fucking sad. And if you know. don't know about Eileen Warnos, like, I was telling Abby, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to open the season with this story and she's like i don't really know much about her Hmm. at all and i was like pull over because eileen Pittman was born february 29th 1956 in rochester michigan to her mom 16 year old diane warnos and her 20 year old father leo Pittman. she had an older brother keith and her parents were divorcing after two years of marriage eileen who went by lee never met her father he was in prison at the time of her birth convicted of raping a seven-year-old girl and died by suicide in prison on January 30th, 1969. So he was alive until she was a teen, and she never met him. Mm. Eileen didn't know her mother well either. Just before Eileen's fourth birthday, Diane abandoned Eileen and Keith with their maternal grandparents, Lori and Britta. A few months after being dropped off, their grandparents adopted the kids. But according to Eileen, she spent her childhood being raped and beaten by her alcoholic grandfather. By 11, Eileen was using sex as a bartering currency for drugs, cigarettes, and food. She was acting out in school, getting in fights. She even set fire in the bathroom. She was found to have an IQ of 81, which is, again, as we've talked about it before, on the very low end of average. At 14, she became pregnant. It was speculated and pretty solidly speculated that her pregnancy was the result of being raped by a 60-year-old neighbor and friend of her grandfather, nicknamed Chief. She hid the pregnancy for six months before being found out and blamed for it by her grandparents. Eileen was sent off to give birth at a facility for wayward girls. The baby boy was put up for adoption at birth. In the following months, Eileen's grandmother, also an alcoholic, died of liver failure. Her shit grandfather then kicked Eileen and her brother out. And this is how she started living in the woods behind the house. She was just trying to survive in the world on her own as a fucking kid. So she hitchhiked and lived off money that she she earned doing sex work. After a disorderly conduct arrest in Colorado, Eileen moved to Florida. And at 20 years old, she met 69-year-old multimillionaire and yacht club president Louis Gratz Fell. After a few months of dating, the two got married. But things went south pretty quickly. Eileen didn't want to take on the role that Louis was expecting her to. I can only imagine the dynamic between a 69-year-old man and a very abused and unhelped 20-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. At one point, he cut her allowance, and she responded by beating him with his own cane. Lewis survived the attack and quickly got a restraining order against his wife, along with an annulment of the nine-week marriage. Nine weeks, damn. Uh, she responded in violence. Mm-hmm. That was her way of responding. Um, it was around this time that Eileen found out that the only family she had left, her brother Keith, had died of throat cancer. And shortly after her brother passed, her grandfather had died by suicide. Eileen returned to the lifestyle she was accustomed 
accustomed to after her short marriage and began hitchhiking again. She pretty much stayed around Florida at this point. She used fake aliases, committed crimes, got into multiple violent altercations, and attempted suicide more than once. Between the ages of 14 and 22, Mm. she allegedly attempted suicide six times. Mm. On May 20th, 1981, Eileen robbed a convenience store at gunpoint. She walked away with 33 bucks. I mean, she was immediately arrested and was put in jail for a year. It was one of many arrests for various crimes, including possession of a firearm, forgery, assault, robbery. The list of things that she was arrested for pretty much mimic those things, but it just goes on. Then in 1986, Ty came into the picture. 24-year-old Tyria Moore, the one real true emotional connection Eileen felt she had in her life. She, again, being played by Christina Ricci, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Tyria was working as a hotel housekeeper and met Eileen one night at a Daytona Beach gay bar called Zodiac, and they moved in together. All right, 1989. Eileen's over men. She's got this relationship with Tyria. She was over how she'd been treated for her entire life at the hands of these dudes, and she was fucking angry. She was still doing sex work. It's the only way she really knew how to make money. Mm-hmm. On November 30th, 1989, Eileen was picked up by Richard Mallory, a 51-year-old dude from Clearwater, Florida. She claimed that Mallory beat her, tied her hands to the steering wheel of the car, and sodomized her before she was able to get to her 22 caliber handgun and shoot him several times, killing him. She then robbed him of money, a camera, and a radar detector. She pawned some of the items at a local pawn shop, and this set off a series of murders. On June 1st, 1990, 47-year-old David Spears' body was found on U.S. Route 19 in Citrus County, Florida. He'd been shot six times by a 22 pistol and left on the side of the road. Five days later, 40-year-old Charles Karskadon's badly decomposed body was found wrapped in an electric blanket, shot nine times with the same gun. On August 4th, 50-year-old Troy Burris was found along State Road 19 in Marion County, Florida. He'd been shot twice before being dumped. Just over a month later, on September 12th, 1990, 56-year-old Dick Humphrey's body was also found in Marion County. Hmm. He had been shot six times. On November 19th, 1990, 62-year-old Walter Antonio's body was discovered in Dixie County, shot four times. As these bodies were being collected, police were following a trail left by Eileen. On my seventh birthday, July 4th, 1990, Eileen and Ty were involved it in a car accident. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't. <laughs> I really want it to. And I, I did it. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm going to pause. I'm going to give her a minute. Um, And I just, uh, but like, why? I don't, it doesn't um, give me that little like electric buzz in my chest that I'm sure you get when you hear (laughs) May 4th and you go, that's the day after my birthday. (laughs) I don't have that. So yeah, that's the last time I'm going to do that. I think unless I have it in my notes somewhere else. (laughs) You can do it if you want. I don't, I don't really want to. All it took was you going, what are you doing for me to go? Yeah. (laughs) I know. It was really quick. Okay, so on this day, July 4th, 1990, Eileen and Ty were involved in a car accident in Orange Springs, Florida. They were seen abandoning the vehicle by witness Rhonda Bailey, who was able to provide a police sketch artist with descriptions of the women. Turns out this car belonged to missing person, 65-year-old Peter Symes, a person who was never found, actually. And the dots were connected pretty quickly. Mm. Police found a palm print belonging to Eileen in Peter's car. They also found items belonging to Peter at local pawn 
pawn shops, along with a receipt at one of the pawn shops with another print belonging to Eileen. Hmm. The state had her prints in the database from her years of arrests already, so they knew exactly who they were looking for. They found evidence that Eileen had pawned a gun belonging to Karskadon, her third known victim. Eileen had also been found to have been in possession and abandoning many of the victim's vehicles. On January 9th, 1991, Eileen was picked up for an outstanding warrant at the Last Resort Biker Bar in Volusia County, Florida. Mm -hmm. What a great name for a bar. I know. The Last Resort. Following her arrest, police found Ty, because she had taken off already. Like, she's got family in Pennsylvania. She was in Ohio for a while. Cops found her. And they were able to convince her to work with them on getting a confession from Eileen in exchange for immunity. Because apparently Ty had not been involved in any of Eileen's shit, but she knew enough that she could be had on something. So on January 16th, she was able to get that confession over the phone. Eileen claimed that she'd been attacked by all of these men and killed them in self-defense. The state of Florida went on to try Eileen in capital court with the charges of, of the first degree murder of Richard Mallory, armed robbery with a firearm or deadly weapon, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. So this trial, this she was only on trial for the murder of Richard Mallory, okay. not for any of the other murders. So in Florida, a defendant is eligible for the death penalty in a murder case if one or more of the following criteria are met. The victim is a cop or a firefighter. The person on trial killed two or more people. If the defendant committed murder for hire or if the murder was committed during a kidnapping, burglary, robbery, rape, or other felony scene fit. It was argued that since Eileen took items and money from Mallory, it was a robbery, so the death penalty was on the table for her. As part of her defense, she maintained that she was attacked by him and killed him in self-defense. Now, this isn't found out until later, but he had a history of his own and had been convicted of attempted rape in Maryland. He was fucking in jail himself. Yeah. And he was professionally observed with possessing strong sociopathic trends. The judge refused to let any of that in or later allow for a retrial with that evidence. Hmm. Against her lawyer's advice, Eileen took the stand to testify to her self-defense story. But as I assume the defense attorney assumed, the prosecution got to her hard on cross-examination mm. and she showed her anger and her rage, which was not great. If you've ever seen any footage of Eileen, you can see that she's not well, but also very angry and turns on a fucking dime. Yeah. On January 27th, 1992, just over a year following her arrest, Eileen was found guilty of the murder of Richard Mallory after only two hours of jury deliberation. She addressed the jury at this time yelling, sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America. Mm -hmm. She was sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. After Eileen's conviction, while being sentenced, psychiatrists testified that she had borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder when she committed her crime. They argued that these diagnoses resulted in, quote, extreme mental or emotional disturbance. She also had evidence of brain damage. Defense attorney Jenkins referred to Eileen as a, quote, damaged primitive child. One of the reasons her defense in the trial was so shaky was because her story changed a few times. You know, at first it was it was self-defense, and then she's like, I fucking robbed the dude. I didn't want him to say anything. So that really hurt her. But one of the psychiatrists testified that was the result of her BPD, which should be considered in sentencing. Mm. Together, they tried to show that her life should be spared because they believed her horrible life experiences of victimization and violence led to these crimes. 
This is when I was like, I always wonder what Huang would say in this situation and like gently explain it to me because Eileen murdered seven dudes, all middle, late, middle-aged white guys. She was abused as a kid by middle-aged slash late middle-aged white guys. And this is where she ends up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. The recommendation for the death penalty was unanimous. The jury believed there were five aggravating circumstances that contributed to this being their conclusion. She had previous felony convictions, which involved the threat of violence. Or the murder was during a robbery. The murder was committed to avoid arrest. It was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. It was cold, calculated, and premeditated. To the jury, the only mitigating factor was Eileen's BPD, but in the end, they decided she still knew right from wrong, regardless of her diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The judge agreed and on January 31st, 1992, sentenced Eileen to death by electric chair. Over the course of the next year, Eileen would receive, including that one, a total of six death sentences for the rest of the murders. There weren't any more trials because she pled guilty or no contest to the rest of them. Mm-hmm. No charges were ever filed for the death of Peter Symes, though, being that his body was never found. Eileen was incarcerated at the Broward Correctional Institution Death Row for Women. In November, just weeks later, Eileen was legally adopted by a 44-year-old woman, Arlene Prawl, who had been following the story and saw Eileen's photo in the paper. I'm not going to bunny trail on her, but if you want to dive into the absurdity of that whole fabric of opportunistic bullshit committed against Eileen, you should check out the documentary Eileen Warnos The Selling of a Serial Killer. I think I've seen that a long time ago. I'm not sure. I'm sure you have. Yeah. this It's the same dude that did the Kurt and Courtney documentary and it's in that documentary that they went to the last resort bar and he's like, hello, can I speak to you outside? And the bartender's like, Ugh. Regardless of her crimes, there was never a time in her life that she wasn't victimized. I mean, after she went to prison and everything, like people were still trying to capitalize Mm -hmm. on. I mean, there were people involved in her arrest, involved in her prosecute, like that were trying to make money off of it. Ty was trying to make money off it. Everybody was. And she's sitting on death row. Right. Uh, She was denied appeal in 1996, but then petitioned the state of Florida in 2001 in an attempt to terminate any pending appeals and dismiss her legal counsel. She said this, quote, I killed those men, robbed them cold as ice, and I'd do it again, too. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I'm so sick of hearing this she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. Mm-hmm. Her representation tried to argue it, saying she wasn't competent to make this statement, but a court-appointed panel of psychiatrists allowed it. It's so hard to know what to think here because her statements were always super inconsistent about the killings. She initially claimed self-defense. Then it was self-defense after being raped by the first one. But moving forward, it was the fear that they were going to rape her. Just like in the episode, the woman kind of blacking out and killing a dude Mm -hmm. was sort of like, I can sense this thing coming and then it would happen or whatever. Right. And then she just changed it to say that she'd robbed all of them and murdered them to not leave witnesses. If you see any documentary footage of her, you can see... Her instability is pretty pretty obvious in her behavior. Mm-hmm. Oh, here to here's the guy. Nick Broomfield is the the guy who does those documentaries. Okay. You would immediately recognize his voice. In between takes with documentarian Nick Broomfield in the early 2000s, she thought the cameras were off and she leaned in and told him it absolutely had been self-defense, but she just wanted to die. She's sitting on fucking death row and she knows she's not getting off. And what happens is as soon as they're like, okay, the, your shit's denied, you're not getting out, then somebody on her behalf is like, well, she's not competent to 
be on death row, to be executed. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, well, we got to talk about it some more. So she's just like sitting there in limbo, being told she's crazy. You're too crazy for us to kill you, but you're also too crazy to be in the public. And you're too, you know what I mean? Yeah. So she's just. she's So she's, she's just kind of like, fucking kill me already. Like yeah. I'm done doing this. Yeah. yeah, but she couldn't say that on record because then they wouldn't. Right. By this point, by the time she said that to Nick Broomfield, she'd been on death row for a fucking decade. Yeah. Eileen was executed the morning of October 9th, 2002, by lethal injection. Florida had gotten rid of the electric chair in 99, mm -hmm. I believe. So that's the only part of it that had changed. Instead of a last meal, she opted for a cup of coffee. And in her last words, she said this, quote, yes, I would like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back. I'll be back. Okay. That that's pretty sweet. was Eileen Warnos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was like, that's a fucking way to go out for sure. Right. Yeah, I've said before with people, it's like an explanation, but not an excuse. Like, you don't get to just murder people. Yeah. and But I do think that she shouldn't have been put to death. She probably should have gone somewhere where they can, she can get some intense therapy and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. She obviously had some major trauma and PTSD and all kinds of shit, you know? Yeah. Actually, next week's Chaser, she pops back up again. Hmm. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Next week, Season 4, Episode 2, Deception. When a corporate mogul is found murdered, evidence points to his son, whom the detectives suspect was seduced <gasps> by his stepmother. <gasps> Salacious. They just show Tommy Boy in its entirety, and it's about Rob Lowe and Bo Derek's relationship. <laughs> yeah. Because he was like, is that for me? Oh. Yeah. Which was kind of gross. Follow us on all social media at SVU Pod. Check out our fucking Patreon. Check out our merch on our website. Rate and review us. People find us because you guys are rating and reviewing us. And we like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag little bit loud. Go check out people that are hashtagging a little bit loud. There's some great fucking podcasts that are doing it. Little indie babies. We love you and support you. That's it. Love, love you. Bye. <laughs> Just like that. Is it and just like that? Is that the Yeah. Just like that. Alright. Tag on the kick tag on the keep fuck it dicks. Somebody goes in to punch him and he just splits his threads <laughs> and comes back together like the fucking Terminator. Oh my god, yeah, he gets shot and it's just like a hole of rats. It just like makes a hole, just like these rats are like and create a big hole and then they all kind of form back together. Yeah, he's a T-1000 of rats. Thanks. Season four starts with a fucking bang. Yeah. Oh, boo, boo, boo. Thanks for looking up. Sponsored by Bailey's Irish Cream. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. <laughs> glug, 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 glug. Do your thing. Glug, 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 glug. <laughs> Sponsored by Bailey's Irish Cream. Glug, 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 glug. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Uh, and to our Elite Squad patrons, Haley K, Sonia W, Jenny S, Sky K, Nikki B, Marissa M, Elkie H, Sarah A, Annie G, Mary D, Andrew, Andrew Rebecca D, Miranda B, Shelby W, Lex, Emily T, Kayla W, Mallory G, Eliza <laughs> W, Bonita R, Baron, <laughs> Vanessa, Amy P, Jess M, Summer M, Melanie G, Courtney W, Ursula M, Emily A and Katrina C, Kate H U Younga, Nicole R, Julia P, Sapphire, Kayla, <laughs> Allison B, 
Shirani, Shy R, Catherine M. Okay, I can't. Kate P, <laughs> Jessica S, Nicole M, Acacia V, Danielle W, Josh H. That's a hard one to say. Emily L, Kelsey D, Jana M, Tammy J, Sarah G, and Crystal and Lucy M. <laughs> we love you and appreciate you. And we're writing a musical of your names. Isn't it good? <laughs> so good. It rhymes so well. Uh. Yeah, I just want to sing and dance. I just want to dance. <laughs> Don't make me dance. <laughs> okay, I'll talk to you later. Later, right. bye. Bye.